here we are. Let's turn our hearts to God's Word, and our scripture reading for today is taken from the last chapter in the book of Genesis. As Joseph, you know him, he reassures his brothers. And I'm going to read chapter 50, verses 15 to 21. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for the wrong we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph saying, your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then, don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them, and he spoke kindly to them. This is God's word. And then let me just add these words of Jesus from John 16, verse 20, which is this. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. Amen. Hey, the best stories are comeback stories. Yeah, think about it. The Shawshank Redemption, uh, Kurt Warner, uh, The Karate Kid, uh, The St. Louis Blues Monday Night Miracle, any of the Rocky movies, Game 7 of the 2016 World Series champion Chicago Cubs. Everyone loves a good comeback story, right? Okay, well, maybe not everybody appreciates the last one, but we do love a good comeback story. Unfortunately for us, the Bible is just full of them. Um, in this series, we are going to take a look at some of the greatest comeback stories ever told. We're going to hear about comebacks and turnarounds and fresh starts. But here's the thing. These stories involve you. It's for people with broken dreams and messed up pasts. It's for those who have and for those who are experiencing grief or pain or guilt or hurt or fear, or all of the above. It's about our God who knows our needs and who is in the business of giving fresh starts to people. God is the God of a comeback, and so if you're longing for some sort of turnaround or fresh start or new direction, then this series is for you, and I'm glad you're here. However, we don't want to be so smug at Messiah as to think that just by listening to a message series that everything's going to be all right in six weeks or less. No. But maybe this will be the first step. Or maybe this will be something that carries you along on a very long journey. Or maybe it's something that you'll just tuck away for later. But whatever your situation, I believe that there's something in here for all of us. For, as Rick Warren says, either you're in a problem, or you just got out of a problem, or you're getting ready to go into a new problem. And so with that in mind, let's get into Joseph's story. Well, you know, Joseph, you're familiar with the story, so I'm just going to recap it briefly and get to the punchline. 
Now, Joseph is one of 12 brothers of Jacob, and Jacob is just a lousy parent, absolutely terrible. No father of the year award for Jacob because he's almost cruel with his favoritism of Joseph over the other sons, even to the point of giving Joseph that coat of many colors. And teenage Joe doesn't do himself any favors because he's, he's kind of arrogant about the whole thing. Not just the coat, but especially about these fantastic dreams that he's been having, where he's the star of the show and all the brothers bow down before him. It's kind of a show off. And his attitude, uh, coupled with Jacob's favoritism, is embittering the hearts of the brothers, so much so that they want to kill him. But they don't kill him. Instead, you know, they just throw him in a pit and then they sell him off. And Joseph ends up as a slave in Egypt. And it's bad, but it gets better for Joseph. He kind of moves up the ranks in Potiphar's house until, until the boss's wife accuses Joseph of inappropriate behavior and he lands in jail. Well, there more dreams come to Joseph. He is eventually released and he becomes vice president. And he helps Pharaoh and all of Egypt through seven years of plenty and then seven years of famine. Uh, Joseph's family back in Canaan is also spared uh, starvation. And at the end, they're all kind of reunited and all is good, but then dad dies and the brothers are a little worried that Joseph at this time is now gonna take his revenge. But here's the punchline. Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. From pit, to slavery, to prison, to royalty, and restoration, and the saving of many lives. From hurt, to hope, to healing. But let's back the truck up. Check out this timeline of Joseph's life, and we're going to do just a little math. Uh, there seems to me about a 40-year span of time between hurt and the healing. And I'm talking specifically here now about the relationship between Joseph and his brothers. Here's what I mean. They sell him off when he's about 17 or so. And you kids in high school, you think you got it tough? Okay, well, they sell him off when he's about 17. And the final restoration, after Jacob the father dies and the brothers come back with this, this lie about what, what the dad said, that takes about a 40-year span of time, including roughly 10 of those years where Joseph sat in prison. Now, that is a long time. 10 years, a really long time. Day after day after day. Well, it's hard to hold on to a dream in a situation like that. It's hard to hold on to a promise when nothing seems to be changing. It's hard to hold on to hope when you've been really, really hurt. I heard of a pastor who was doing kind of a Bible study on Joseph in a Bible class, and one of the members just kind of said, why? Why? Why all the suffering? and the ups and the downs and the misery and the selling and the running and going here and there and crying in prison and waiting year after year after year. Couldn't God just come in with a better, quicker plan? You know, couldn't God just kind of 
early on pop in on Jacob and sons and say something like, okay, everybody, listen up. I'm gonna settle this thing right now. We don't need 40 years of pain and misery to solve this. No, you, Joseph, you're being a spoiled brat. Stop it. And he'd say, okay. And you brothers, your hearts are getting hard. You're, you're turning into evil, murderous people. And Jacob, you better keep your eye on those brothers because they want to sell Joseph into slavery. Don't let them do that. And he'd say, all right. Oh, and Jacob, will you just stop your favoritism? Oh, and one more thing. By the way, in about 25 years from now, there's going to be a big, big famine, and so you better start stocking up. Otherwise, you're all going to starve to death. But what would that take? About a half hour? Tops? But that's not how it works. God is not a TV movie. No. Real life, you have to trust. You have to wait. You have to hope. Yeah, God does seem absent at times. If you look at Joseph, man, everything is going wrong. Everything. And yet, it's only because of those bad things that put Joseph in a position to heal the relationship with his brothers, to save God's people, to save that part of the world from mass starvation. It's all because of those bad things that it got good. And it's only at the end where we see what Joseph sees. What was intended for evil, God meant for good. Well, here's what that means for you. I'll offer this from Pastor Tim Keller, and I'm gonna to refer to him again and again throughout this sermon because he's got some really good insight. He says, don't ever, 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 ever think that God is not working. Don't ever think that God is not working, no matter how much it seems like he's absent. And then never, 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 never think that you're gonna be able to figure it out for a long time exactly what he's up to. Because it's only at the end. At the end. At the end. Don't say to God, you've got until Saturday. You've got till Saturday, God, to tell me why you're letting this happen to me. No, no, no. God works non-obviously, but he works. You see, you are being led. You are being guided. You are being carried along. He's with you. You are being cared for. You just don't feel it. And that's where hope comes in. Hope. That's the last word in the movie, The Shawshank Redemption. The whole movie is about hope. It's a great comeback story. It's a Joseph story, but I'll tell you, it's really a Jesus story. I think the movie's rated R, so it's not family friendly, but it is one of my favorites, especially after author John Ortberg pointed out the uh, comparison between the main character, Andy Dufresne, and Christ. Like Jesus, Andy is unjustly arrested. He is tried, condemned, and beaten. But in a brutal world, he is kind. There's nobody like him. He isn't anxious about anything. 
And he is persecuted by the warden who is just a Pharisee and a hypocrite and who hands him a Bible and he tells him that salvation lies within. And it's true in the end. Salvation does lie within because the Bible is where Andy hides the small hammer in which he chips his way to freedom. Uh, by the way, the cutout space in the Bible where Andy hides the hammer, you can see it there. The Exodus. Oh, this is so good. The exit. Oh, it's rich. The story of God leading his people out of bondage. And Pastor Jim's going to cover all that next week. But spoiler alert, if I haven't already spoiled it for you, Andy escapes prison. But how? Well, he descends into hell. He crawls to freedom through 500 yards of prison sewer pipe, half filled with sewage, and he comes out on the other side, cleansed by a river and the rain, and raising his hands, he's bathed in light and freedom. It is a resurrection scene. Well, Andy's tomb, which is his empty cell, that marks the beginning of the end of the regime of the warden. Now, throughout the movie, Andy, the Christ figure, and Red, who is just like you and me, they have this running argument about hope. Red says that hope is a dangerous thing, that hope can drive a man insane. But Andy says that hope is a good thing, maybe the best of good things. Well, toward the end of the movie, Andy has departed prison, and he has gone off to a better place. Red remains for a while. Eventually, he is paroled, but when he leaves prison, he finds out that life without hope cannot sustain him. His options are suicide or doing something that will get him sent back to prison, except, except for this promise. Because Andy made a promise to Red. And so, Red sets out on this journey of discovery, and it leads him to the foot of a tree, a cross. And he discovers that his friend Andy has given him a treasure. It is a gift that Andy acquired through suffering. And the free gift for Red is an invitation to join Andy in paradise. You see, Andy has gone off to prepare a better place for Red. It's a hotel, a house of many rooms. In the movie, it's located off the coast of Mexico, and it's, a, it's beautiful, it's free, it's completely opposite of prison. It is a place of rest and comfort and joy. It's absolutely heavenly. And in the final scene, we, we see Andy dressed in dazzling white, and he's rehabbing a fishing boat to the edge of a long coastline next to the blue Pacific Ocean. Red's narration closes out the movie. I'm so excited, I can barely sit still or hold a thought in my head. I hope I can make it across the border. I hope to see my friend and shake his hand. I hope the Pacific is as blue as it has been in my dreams. I hope. And that right there is how the Christian lives. We hope. We must always come back to hope. And I'm not talking about a, a wishy kind of hope, but a knowing, count on it, looking forward to it kind of hope. 
See, it's holding on to this promise that will not disappoint us. It is hope in Christ that carries us along. No matter how hurt we are, no matter how long it takes, we hope. No matter what, Jesus told us, your grief will, will turn to joy. We all have a good comeback story. One of the very best examples is the disciple Peter, and I'm, I'm going to preach about Peter and Jesus at the conclusion of our message series. But today, I just want to point us to something that Peter wrote down as a way for us to apply God's word in our lives so that we can move along from hurt to hope. It's from 1 Peter chapter 4, and let's go with verses 12 to 19. Uh, In this section, Peter is teaching us something about how to suffer as a Christian. He's teaching us something about hope. Listen to this. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering as though something strange were happening to you but rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ. Okay, let's stop there. First point, don't be surprised. This one catches us off guard all the time. Don't be surprised. You will suffer, expect it, and then rejoice. How do you do that? I'll explain. That doesn't mean you have to be happy about it. No. You don't rejoice because you are hurt, but you can rejoice as a Christian knowing that you are walking the same road as Jesus. So cry, yes, just like Jesus. Hurt, yes, just like Jesus. Weep, yes, just like Jesus. Weeping is a fitting response, but surprise shouldn't be. Because surprise will hurt you. It will embitter you. It will harden your heart. You can't say, how can this happen to me? I've been a good person. It's not fair. I'm a Christian. No, 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 no. Don't be surprised. When Jesus went to the cross, oh, he was sorrowful to the point of death. He was incredibly sad, but he wasn't surprised. And what do we do? We follow Christ. Thy will be done, that's what we say. And by the way, if you're interested in a sweet little Old school kind of prayer, I've got a good one for you. Just text us hello right there, and we will be happy to pass it along to you. I love this prayer. The prayer is titled this, A Prayer for Overcoming My Disappointments. Oh, I hope that you find it helpful. Well, let's continue with 1 Peter. I'll skip ahead to verses 16 and 17. However, if you suffer as a Christian, don't be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name, for it is time for judgment to begin with the family of God. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not 
obey the gospel of God. Key word here, obey. Mm. If you are suffering, if you are hurt, if life is ripping you off, then as a Christian, obey. Obey, you respond with obedience. In your suffering, obey. As Tim Keller points out, when you walk through trials, it's very easy to disobey, isn't it? It's very easy to stop praying, to stop digging into God's word, to stop coming to church, to stop serving other people. It's very easy to disobey because we get so absorbed in our own troubles. It's very easy to turn to self-pity. It's very easy to turn in on yourself and turn your back on God. It's very easy to turn to some sin that will momentarily kind of numb the pain and help you overcome how bad you feel. But know this, that that sin will end up hurting you a hundred times more than the original suffering ever would. Your hurt will only increase. But obedience, if you stick with God, it will turn you into something better. Recap. Don't be surprised. Secondly, obey. Last point, 1 Peter 4.19. So then, those who suffer according to God's will, interesting, God's will, should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. Whoa. Commit yourself. Commit. Commit yourself to God. What does that mean? Last Keller reference. Continue to do good. Make it a positive. You can trust God even when you don't know what's going on. Christians should get this best because we have something that no other religion has to offer. Christians are the only ones in the world who have a God that suffered. Jesus Christ suffered in all kinds of ways, every way possible. He suffered socially. He experienced everything you would ever experience, rejection from family, from friends, from enemies alike. Loneliness? Jesus knew loneliness. He also suffered physically more than we would ever begin to understand. Most of all, he suffered spiritually in that he experienced tremendous desolation as he was cut off from God the Father when he hung on the cross. He suffered there in such a way that we will never ever have to experience he is the only God, when you go to him in your suffering, he is the only one who can turn back to you and say, I know what you mean. He knows what you mean. He knows. Oh, he knows. Just think about it. He knows what it's like to be hurt. And he was hurt for you, by the way. 
He knows what it's like to be lonely. And he was lonely for you, by the way. He knows what it's like to die. He died for you, by the way. Commit yourself to Jesus because he cares for you. Remain faithful. Hope in Jesus. Your grief will turn to joy. And if not soon, it certainly will. In the end. In the end. In the end. Amen. Let's pray.